This week's episode is brought to you by Thomas McCain and Alkai Almeida. Thank you, Thomas McCain and Alkai Almeida. It's with the generous support of listeners like you that we get to keep making Socratic mind orgies for your brain meats every single week. If you'd like to be the miracle that keeps this choir's lungs full of fresh helium, please visit www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit, where your monthly donation of just $5 gets you access to our entire library of extended episodes in convenient RSS feed format, which means it'll work on your favorite podcast player of choice. But that's not all. You'll get a 5x5 high-quality vinyl sticker of our cover art sent to you at no additional cost, and the keys to our Discord server, which is the meeting point after we're done robbing the holy mountain of its secrets. This week's CSS conclude our Lord of the Rings-sized journey into the abyssal depths of Thelema, whatever the hell that essential holy book, the book that you've heard it all before, the thing that people think is written by Alistair Crowley in the first person because he felt like it and they wouldn't know Ankh Khonsu from the sound of their toilet bakes when it breaks because who are we kidding? If you've made it this far, it's because you're too strange to live and too rare to die. We thank you from the bottom of our little bunny hearts. Thank you and enjoy the show. Oh, it's John D's birthday. It's also the 35th birthday of Metal Gear. What? Oh, cool. I know, right? It's like Kojima is on to this whole magical theme. Kojima knows Metal Gear. Definitely have realized some polemic themes in that franchise since I've joined the whole Rabbit Discord for sure. We are building up to the Metal Gear Solid Megasode. I don't know how, I don't know when, but it's going to have to happen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Whole Rabbit, where we don't just spend all day arguing with pedantic, self-congratulatory edgelords with enough thirst to make an undressed Trisket look like the Nile River, which they've never heard of because they've never read anything about Egypt, and think it's a defense mechanism you have on a water slide. Nay, we gently collect the sarcophagal dust off of Chapter 3's second half, sprinkle in some fresh Ormus, whatever that is, and let the spirit cooking begin, because this week we're discussing the conclusion of the final chapter of Thelema's holy book, The Book of the Law, Chapter 3. I'm your host, Luke Madrid, the Hack Rabbit. I'm joined this week by the Dog Lady of the Stars, Marisama. Woo, hello. The mystically maniacal Malachor 5. Yep, mm-hmm, hello. And the fairy dew-covered goddess of the dawn, Heka Astra. Hello. So this finally brings us to the harrowing conclusion of our ongoing series about the fundamentals of Thelema, the book of the law, and what it all means for our lives today. In an attempt to paint the full picture, we've looked at the brilliant revelations of Medimi and the Daughter of Fortitude in the works of Elizabethan super wizards John Dee and Edward Kelly, happy birthday, echoing the voice of the apocryphal Thunder Perfect Mind discovered in time sequence with the Babylon workings of Jack Parsons, Marjorie Cameron, and L. Ron Hubbard, which emphasizes the centrality of the goddess, whose image is, as she says in her own words, great in Egypt, and known to us through the various uncredited samples and remixes, which defined the so-called greatest rap singles of all time in terms of Western philosophy and religion, with Kelly and Crowley's Book of the Law as her debut release, kicking off an era authored by her and the people on her label. So how better to wrap up the epic discussion than talking about cakes? I like cake. Delicious cake. Is it a lie, though? 
I really wanted to see a Philema cooking show where groups of contestants who've never heard of Philema or even baked before get to compete making different themed cakes of light in an on-set kitchen with a time limit with snarky judges from the OTO. Can you imagine them looking at the recipe guide for the first time? You want me to do what? But seriously, many people have only heard of Aleister Crowley because he gets brought up tangentially alongside the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign controversy regarding spirit cooking, which involved the likes of John Podesta, Marina Abramovic, and of course, Lady Gaga. While we're not going to discuss those people as a whole during this episode, we're going to discuss Crowley's actual spirit cooking quite a bit. What, Marina Abramovic? She's like a really old witch. She's like in her 70s, but she looks like she's 40 or 50. She goes around and does these, they call it performance art when they do the ritual, but she's like had tubs of blood and scattered it around a room and like semen and bodily fluids. And like, she just like wildly paints on the wall and stuff or like feeds it to the people that are viewing the quote unquote performance. It's like, really weird but all these uh elite people they go to her for her rituals and like there is a famous photo of john podesta holding up his hands and you can see on it's like your left ring finger or your right ring finger or something but you're supposed to cut it eat to the like, pain yeah eat the pain <laughs> <laughs> well, and then alistair crowley always gets brought up right after that and they're like it's his fault look let the man die on the words he did say i don't think he had anything to do with lady gaga or john podesta but he but that's how people know about him. They're inspired by him and they perform these rituals, but it's, you know, I don't know if that's the way he originally contrived it, you know? And that's what we're here to talk about today. So what horrible things you do in your imagination, blog, or kitchen following this episode is not our responsibility or fault. And by continuing to listen, you agree to those terms. Yeah, and don't go feeding this shit to other people without them knowing. So to begin the second half of the Book of the Law, Chapter 3, we're going to pick up where we left off with line 23, which begins by instructing the aspirant on the creation of a Thelemic Eucharist sacrament. BT dubs, what is the Eucharist sacrament? When you eat the body of a god. Like the wafer at communion in church. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know how when you eat the bread at church, it's like the body of Christ, you know, and the wine is the blood of Christ. The bread is the Eucharistic sacrament. Thelema is, um, it, it has its own Eucharist. So would a Eucharist be like transforming the material objects that you're going to ingest into the spirit of the God that you're worshiping? It's a kind of communion through integrating it into your body. So the Eucharist is symbolic. So a cake of light, it's a kind of Eucharistic cinnamon cookie, and it could be associated with the sun or Tifereth. Line 23 reads, For perfume, mix meal and honey and thick leavings of red wine, then oil of abramelin and olive oil, and afterwards soften and smooth down with rich, fresh blood. Bum, bum, bum. You know, this is actually kind of interesting that you have to ingest the bodily fluids, because in um, in tribal societies, a lot of them think that you'll gain the powers and the that you'll gain the power of your enemy if you eat them. The can of worms is opening. Okay, so at some point, the strongest hunter guy just started giving up his firstborn son, and they started eating him instead. Fast forward. That's where Jesus comes in. We're supposed to eat, eat the flesh of the son of God to gain his strength and be saved within the tribe. It's all very old. It's like protection. 
Well, I'm just saying that's how old the Eucharist is. It goes back to that. It's even older than that, too. Yeah, before history. It's like when humans are not as smart as they are now, I guess. It's like an automatic assumption that if you eat something that you gain its properties. It even goes back to the Osirian myth where it's like Osiris taught people how to not be like cannibalistic and that they didn't have to be cannibalistic for this. It's a really, really old uh, concept. And so it would make sense with the dawning of the new Aeon that there would be an update to this formula. I'll be honest, it sounds like we haven't really figured it out completely. Here he's talking about one that you're going to actually like, the perfume scent of it is the the smell of the cake itself. And when you burn it, the aroma of it, because then another one is for ingestion. That's what the next line is going to talk about. But this one is specifically for the perfume or the incense reasons. And Crowley says here, ordinary wheat and flour, leavings. He says the bee's wing of port should be good. Oil of abramelon, take eight parts of oil of cinnamon, four of oil of myrrh, two of oil of galangal, and seven of olive oil. I guess I should say as well, in Thelema, there's only two Eucharist rituals or masses, and that's the Gnostic Mass and then the Mass of the Phoenix. For anyone who's confused and doesn't know what leavings of port are, here's kind of a quick little summary that I wanted to say. Port is a sweet dessert wine, and wine leavings are the dregs, the sediment, or the sludgy stuff that's left over in a bottle of wine. It's actually a kind of dead yeast, so this helps the cookie rise. Oh. Yeah, fun baking stuff. These dregs, these leavings, they're not the same substance as the leftover sludge that can be obtained from evaporating wine that's entirely different. Leavings themselves can be removed from wine in several ways, including a process called cold stabilization. You know how you don't usually put red wine in the fridge? Yeah. This is why. But if you want to get leavings, then you can chill the wine to 32 degrees Fahrenheit for a long period of time. So this is typically like three weeks. And that causes the sediment to form into larger crystals and it makes them easier to remove from the wine. That sediment, that's what you want. That's the leavings. So red wines form more crystals when they're chilled than white wines do. And after you chill red wine, the crystals can be gathered in like a coffee filter or cheesecloth as well, but it's harder to actually use leavings after you do that. So you do that while pouring out the wine. Fun fact, like I mentioned, it's a kind of, they're called lees or leavings. And these, because they're a kind of dead yeast cells, these crystals are commonly used in baking. It's a common baking ingredient that you might actually be familiar with called cream of tartar. So that's simply these crystals dried and ground up. Oh, okay. Because I never knew what that was, but it's just dead yeast. It's like a hot cereal that you can make. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make even like flour and, you know, baking products from scratch. Like, <laughs> so, you know, this- you know, what else is interesting, too, is um, I was raised in an Anglican church, which is like a Protestant offshoot that copies Catholicism and they use port wine in their communion. Oh, it's the blood of the vine, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. Cream of tartar helps what you're baking to fluff up. That's what it does. You know, what's crazy, though, is the yeast is dead, but it still works in a certain way. Like zombies. Straight up alchemy. Yeah, zombie yeast. (laughs) So another method to get leavings is to use a decanter. Older wines, they also tend to have more leavings. And red wines have more than white wines do. So since port is mentioned specifically in Crowley's commentary, it's pretty safe to assume that an older red dessert wine would be ideal for this. And there is also another alternative for collecting the leavings from wine. But I think we have to bring up line 24 first. Line 24, the best blood is of the moon, monthly. 
than the fresh blood of a child, or dropping from the host of heaven, then of enemies, then of the priest or of the worshippers, last of some beasts, no matter what. Question? Mm -hmm. Is the blood of the moon period blood? Yes, it is. Oh, snap. It is the best shit. Melkor's nodding his head solemnly. <laughs> I mean, if, if I was going to make it, you know, that involves a partner. You know, as a male, it involves me having to do it with some woman. So that's kind of... Failing that, you can use your own semen. Ooh. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, yeah. that, that's the dropping from the host of heaven. Oh, I see. Okay. As Eshelman says, what kind of blood to use? They're given in the order of quality. The first, of course, is menstrual blood. Why is it the best? A partial answer is that there are certain tantric teachings of its virtue, and these seem supportable in at least some instances. But also, the blood is given freely and without loss of existing life. But the colons and semicolons segregate the blood types here. Therefore, the second type is the fresh blood of a child, or dropping from the host of heaven. This is not baby's blood. The latter part of the phrase links it unmistakably to manna, the sole food of the Israelites in their 40-year sojourn under Moses' leadership. Given obligations I have taken, I can do nothing more than to say it takes two to make a child. So he's saying he can't tell you, but it's the union of male and female fluids after sex. Oh, okay. And this is based on the idea that a sex act always creates a child, but what is being referred to here specifically is between a, a partner of two different whatever. So it doesn't have to be like fully formed and alive. It's just the act that's referenced. It is just the <laughs> act. And a lot of people use this to say that Crowley was into child sacrifice, etc. It's just not true. Well, and then other people could use that as justification and I do think, it the wrong way. I think ideally it would be vaginal fluid mixed with semen. Yeah, it's doable. So of the Eucharist and the art of alchemy, Crowley states in chapter 20 of his book, Magic in Theory and Practice, the following statement. So far, it is a type of every magic ceremony for the reabsorption of the force is a kind of consumption, but it has a more restricted application as follows. Take a substance. This may be of composite character, symbolic of the whole course of nature, make it God and consume it. There are many ways of doing this, but they may easily be classified according to the number of the elements of which the sacrament is composed. The highest form of the Eucharist is that in which the element consecrated is one. So then Crowley goes on to say, the cakes of light are universally applicable. They contain meal, honey, and oil, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, the three necessaries of human nutrition, also perfume of the three essential types of magical and curative virtue. The subtle principle of animal life itself is fixed in them by the introduction of fresh living blood. According to Thelemistas.org, they say, if the cakes of light are being made for personal use, they can be prepared in any way that the individual chooses to interpret L3 23 through 29. Should they be for use in a public or group ritual, however, issues of biological contamination are a factor. Various Various Thelemic communities have protocols for ensuring sterility, generally involving baking procedures. Should individuals participating in such a ritual feel that these procedures deviate from their personal relationship with the description of the cakes of light in the Book of the Law, the most appropriate way of addressing this legitimate issue is probably for them to bring cakes that they have made for themselves. These can be differentiated from the other cakes used in the ritual and administered specifically to them. So just bring your own cakes of light. Unless you want to try somebody else's. <laughs> unless you're, unless you're, you're down. You're free to do that. <laughs> You know, it's do it thou wilt, you know, if that's if that's you want to connect with the group God or your personal one. 
whatever, do it. So from my understanding, different lodges may have different practices, uh, but it's generally well understood that the cakes of light have some form of biological material baked into them. I mean, as do most cookies. But in this case, we need period blood and semen. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So due to a variety of individual comfort levels regarding that biological material, as well as dietary concerns, there have been some options made available to those attending Gnostic Mass at a lodge, especially since the Gnostic Mass is a central worship rite of the OTO. So according to the Thelema Lodge calendar, the use of blood in the cakes of light, either literal blood or a metaphor of blood, is a necessity in a properly done Gnostic Mass. The choice of source of the biological material, and I mean blood, may vary from lodge to lodge, but for congregational mass, the most commonly accepted blood appears to be from either a priest or priestess, or that of a beast. So these workarounds are outlined sometimes a bit vaguely and sometimes more specifically. One such commentary that is specific about the use of menstrual blood and other such biological ingredients that go into the making of the cakes can be found in the Thelema Lodge calendar in an article called Hygiene and the Mass. And in this article, it stated that due to the nature of the ingredients in the cakes and the use of them in the Gnostic Mass, that several concerns about the cakes have been addressed over the years, primarily of the question of health and safety. So it further states in that article, in view of potential health hazards involved with blood, the bishops in 1983 established the following provisions. One, cakes of light should be baked for at least 30 minutes in an oven at a reasonably high temperature and blood should be added prior to baking with the abermelon oil. Two, communicants are encouraged to provide their own cakes of light in a wrapper with their name. Such cakes may be reserved on the altar for the exclusive use of those who bring them. So bringing your own cake of light completely removes the health hazards so long as you do wrap it individually. Likewise, any dietary restrictions can be accommodated this way for those that are, you know, gluten-free or have allergies and such. Further outlines were then added as well regarding what is or is not appropriate in the making of the cakes of light, including specifications for not adding drugs into the cakes. <laughs> Stop it, you guys. Yeah. So, <laughs> You're not allowed to bring your pot brownie cake of light. What? No ketamine um, frosting? <laughs> no mushrooms? No mushrooms. This is bullshit. No LSD. This is bullshit. I don't want any of this Salima nonsense anymore. So these outlines, they also specify that the adding of other additional ingredients like nuts or raisins is no go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, people, people trying to have chocolate chip cake of light. Chocolate chip. <laughs> It's just as banned as the weed nuggets. That's hilarious. <laughs> you think this is chocolate flavored Thelema? Get out of here! Never take cookies from a Thelemite. <laughs> so yeah, it said that if if something in the recipe can't be either acquired or consumed, then just straight up don't make the cakes at all and don't add anything that's not in the original recipe. They're to be made as defined by the recipe described in Lieber Al. <laughs> is that, that comes with, with gluten, right? I think rice flour would be sufficient because it's still a grain. Personally, I would think rice flour would be fine, but almond flour wouldn't be because it's not a grain. Wow. So mochi's okay. Make a mochi cake alight. Could do. One suggestion regarding both the wine leavings and blood 
that I wanted to come back to is to use the blood as a fining agent for clearing a cloudy wine. And this is actually a really old technique for clearing wine that can be done using egg whites. And as we talked about in the blood episode, blood can function as a substitute for eggs in recipes. And so the same is applicable here for clearing a cloudy wine. In <laughs> Tips for vampires. <laughs> blood wine is quite popular. In this method, the blood is added to the wine, it's shaken up, and then the bottle is inverted so that both the leavings and the blood settle into the neck of the bottle. And one reason for this approach is to lessen health risks from the blood by sanitizing it with the alcohol that's naturally occurring in the wine. I will note, though, that sanitizing is not the same thing as sterilizing and that for certain bloodborne pathogens like hepatitis C, alcohol will absolutely not kill the pathogen. Don't tell this to my old college roommates. Like if vodka touches it, it is now pure and clean. Not always. Sterilization is different than sanitation. Sanitation mostly like will kill germs and such, but sterilization typically requires something like an autoclave. This is what they do for hospital sterilization. It's an actual like steam pressure um, machine that you put in your items that need to be sterilized, like forceps and needles and stuff like that. Yeah, like if you drop an instrument on the hospital floor and then you just use an alcohol wipe, you're no. killing like tuberculosis and that's it really. <laughs> you know, like. And this is like nothing to balk at either. Hepatitis C can live on a surface for up to three months without human contact. And the only way to guarantee killing it is by autoclaving it, by sterilizing it, not sanitizing it. So yeah, putting your blood into your wine will sanitize it and kill some germs, but it, it will not kill hepatitis C. That's probably good to know for people who think otherwise. That process of adding the blood to the wine, it can be done prior to baking. So then further sanitation does occur in the baking of the cakes. This does appear to be a popular approach for some lodges. Since between the wine and the baking, the biological materials pose less risk. If you do choose to take this approach to the leavings and blood ingredients of the cake by combining them, it, it would certainly suffice in preparing the two hardest ingredients. In this article from the Lima Lodge Calendar, where hygiene and the masks are detailed, it's from the 1990s. And it appears that like now, some lodges will just straight up burn the blood and then add the ashes to the cake as a kind of workaround that avoids the issue of hygiene altogether. I personally think that you lose the soul of the blood in doing that if you are familiar with alchemy. When you burn something, if you do not catch the the sulfur and the mercury as it comes out, all you're left with is the salt. And the the sulfur is the soul and the mercury is the, the communication and integration of that. So when you burn it, you kind of lose that. So I, I personally think that that's not a viable approach, but I see why they did that. I mean, unless you're like heavy on some fire symbolism, that might be adding to it a little bit. You're still losing. Yeah, you're still losing the the essence and the spirit. Of course, of course, but you can do whatever you want with this. And if you feel you want to add a little bit more fire, you know, affinity to it, heat it up a little bit, maybe. I want blood salts on my cookie. I was gonna say, <laughs> if you're a salty person too, you might enjoy that. I think it would be, you know, you'd keep the body aspect of it, the material body aspect of it, but you would lose the the mental and soul aspect of it. Like living aspect. You could just go take it one step further, make a blood spagyric and then add the spagyric back to it. Hmm. Guaranteed you won't have any pathogens left in it. It would be pure. 100% certain that's been done too. Sounds fun. When do you get to stab your finger and eat the pain? 
<laughs> Barbarians. On to line 25. This burn. Of this make cakes and eat unto me. This hath also another use. Let it be laid before me and kept thick with perfumes of your orison. It shall become full of beetles, as it were, and creeping things sacred unto me. Mmm, bugs. You will eat the bugs. And you will I be love, happy. I love beetles. Yeah, there's jewel beetles of various kinds, and they look like solid gold, solid silver, or just shiny green. I was like, wow. There's a kind of jewel beetle that's like a rainbow green kind of color. All right, let's talk about what this means. Leave cakes on the altar and keep it thick with the perfume of your orison. So you got to sprinkle the altar cookie with pussy juice until creepy crawlies appear and then burn it. Is that what it's saying? <laughs> That's what it's saying, isn't it? Like a brush, just like flick the <laughs> liquids at it. Just just like here it, dab here the meat flaps on them. Like. <laughs> Is it kind of like a like an Aspergis? Like, yes. You know. <laughs> just yes. Crowley mentions that these things never smelled like much besides burnt pie crust. <laughs> they just don't smell like much, except a cooking experiment gone wrong. Eshelman says, Crowley tried these experiments and obtained staggeringly good results, exactly as described. The method is to place the perfume before a statue of Horus, or perhaps a stelly would do, and do adorningly pray often before this. Knowing thelemites, that probably means humping. One can expect that some sort of vermin would eventually result. Alistair Crowley's results were quite extraordinary. I bet he attracted some dung beetles. It notes somewhere in here that they were a black beetle with a large horn in the middle. That they were never seen in the area before. Yeah, he captured it, right? And then, like, took it to some entomologists and... They're like, wow, this is a new species for here. What a weirdo. <laughs> So I, I think this line ends with a pretty obvious reference to Kepri, the Egyptian god that was represented by a scarab beetle. We've talked about Kepri a few times as he's an aspect of Ra. He symbolizes the force and movement of the sun across the sky. Symbolically speaking, these are cakes of union, creation, and divinity. And they're, you know, cakes, cookies, wafers, however you like to call them. They're symbolic also of, of the sun like I mentioned before. So I, I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the use of bread itself and baked goods because bread is symbolic of the union of creative forces. The seed in the darkness of the womb, which grows, is harvested and made into the bread. So you know how some people sometimes call a, a baby in the womb a bun in the oven? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the symbolism of laying the products of union before divinity and consuming it as a form of nourishing integration with divinity is here in this line of the book. And I think it's interesting to point out the relationship to Isis here and the bread in ancient Egypt. Isis's name was often written with a bread bun included in it. So you have, you know, there's a throne in her name, but there's also a bread bun. And it's directly tied to the symbolism and associations of Osiris to seed, wheat, and fertility. In hieroglyphics, the bread bun, or loaf, is often used as a determinant for feminine qualities, names, or statements. And a womb, which made the seed into a divine child. With this third chapter, we know that the divine child of union, Rahur Kweet, is heavily associated with the sun. And so a conception and birth of the, of the divine child as the sun is made symbolic in the cake of light. And then in this line, the beetles are symbolic of the force that moves the sun through the sky. Your union and life breads, if you want to call it, are both made one with you on the micro scale when you eat it, as well as on the macro scale when laid upon the sacred space. And it feeds the momentum and sacred force or beetles 
of your will. And then in line 26, it says, these slay, naming your enemies, and they shall fall before you. So I think he's saying to slay the beetles in this line. And for me, it translates as a method of protection through symbolic association. By naming the beetles as your enemies, it kind of symbolizes identifying and destroying the force of your enemies. They're kept free. These enemies could be any force which would seek to feed upon your divine manifestation, laying the power in which their sun is pushed across the sky. And I think this may be metaphorical, but if you actually have beetles and other creepy crawlies running around your altar, then you kind of might want to slay them anyways for your own house and personal hygiene. So I, I don't see why not. Like, why not name opposing forces while doing this? I think it kind of works on multiple levels. This is one of those sections where I feel... Of all the lines to take literally in the book of the law, these seem to be the most tempting. And it's hard to imagine anything but creating cookies, setting them on your altar, letting beetles show up, and then killing them, naming your enemies. But what if there is a metaphorical aspect to this as well? And this is representing something in meditation or through the works in one's life? Because anytime you're doing something, anytime you're doing something important, you're going to have things that interrupt you and mess you up. And in order to deal with those things, you have to name them and figure out what they are so you can get rid of them. Yeah, and, and don't let the forces of others change what is your divine child. Like, that's kind of how I also think of it. Because to name your enemies, you have to know your enemies. And that's what you're doing. You're like, this thing isn't working because of this, and I'm going to fix it. There's one interesting thing about this, because you're supposed to make this cake with, like, your bodily fluids with your essence and then you're attracting you like some negative force or something maybe like this can be symbolic of uh internal things like uh you know shadow work and stuff you're attracting them into like a physical representation of something to come and feed off of your power and then you're just smashing it you're like okay like it's and you know it that's got something like even if you're not even a thalamite like just putting your bodily fluids into something that you can eat put it on your altar pray to it after a couple days look at the crazy monster that's there and just kill it and then Maybe you'll feel better about some internal struggle. I don't know. I think part of being on a spiritual path and, and part of really life itself is this kind of beacon that we become. You know, when you put more energy into something, you kind of light up on that plane. And the more energy that's put into it from yourself and from the external, the more you light up and the more it attracts others. I think it's also kind of telling you like to see what is being attracted that is negative and slay it. Name it, know it, slay it. And if we take it all together, it's actually pretty spooky, powerful sounding to use it magically as said. Like you attract something that resonates with a parasitic element in your life and then destroy it. I don't know. It sounds like it has maybe meanings on multiple levels. Like you could do that magically. It doesn't sound very sterile though. But neither is life. And it's interesting. You use some interesting words. Hecka. You said beacon and like this self-destructive aspect of a phoenix because the other, you know, ritual or mass that you use a Eucharist for as a thalamite is the mass of the phoenix, which is representative. Well, it has to deal with all sorts of stuff. You do a prayer, you make the cakes, do this prayer, and you, you cut a, a symbol onto your chest. So on the cakes, you're supposed to do a cross. At least that's what I've been told. And it's, it's a cross inside of a circle because it's a circular little cake. So you're supposed to make that symbol on your chest as the sun sets. And it's like a phoenix going down, but you're like absorbing the, the sun's energy and all that stuff. And then you, you soak it up and you eat it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. That's like what you're talking about with Nephthys. That sounds sacred to her with the X's and the fading sunlight of the day and the nourishing mm -hmm. yourself with it. Related to the Benben, which is a really cool Egyptian god I've talked about a couple times here, but the one of the earliest uh, depictions of the phoenix. And so that's why it's called the mask, the phoenix. But I it's like an Egyptian thing. to call that kind of beacon and the, the attractive qualities of it, the lighthouse effect, because you're, you're pretty much being like, here I am. Whether yeah, you and know it's the it top of the pyramid. Yeah, yeah, it's the top of the pyramid, which is like a beacon. If it was, yeah, if you're in the desert, this shining gold yeah. fireball at the top of the pyramid, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, the pyramidal yeah. Ben Ben would have been shiny AF. Mm -hmm. I made sure of it. That's so cool. Well, that's the hill I'm going to die on. If you remove <laughs> Egypt and Egyptian wisdom from Thelema, it makes a lot less sense. It's a lot more gobbledygook by a, a large degree. Personally, I think anyone who says that there is no Egyptian wisdom in Thelema says that because they don't know any Egyptian wisdom. I'm too weird to have friends in the occult. I'm sorry. I it just, just you guys and gals. <laughs> That's it. I don't know. This is why we can't have nice things. They shouldn't let me go on Twitter. They did not let me on TikTok. So I think we... <laughs> We're doing something right. Some bridges somewhere will not be burned. Line 27. Also, these shall breed lust and power of lust in you at the eating thereof. I'm pretty sure this line is in reference to the cakes of light and not the beetles. What about the enemies? Don't eat the beetles. I mean, do if you want, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's in reference to the cakes of light. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's the band, the beetles. Eat them. <laughs> I'm laughing never, at this. <laughs> There's still one left. Now's your chance. I've never tried this. Never made a cake of light myself. I've never listened to the Beatles ever. What? <laughs> I grew up on that shit. Strawberry fields forever. That's a later one. I'm. La I was laughing at the comment. <laughs> eat the bugs. <laughs> you will eat the bugs, and you will be happy. <laughs> and you will own nothing. Line twenty-eight. Also, ye shall be strong in war. Crowley's comment here says to look to the conclusion of the first Aether, as mentioned in The Vision and the Voice, a narrative description of what Alistair Crowley saw scrying the Aethers. Mighty, 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 yeah, thrice and four times mighty art thou. He hath risen up against thee shall be thrown down. Thou shalt rise not so much as thy little finger against him, and he that speaketh evil against thee shall be put to shame, though thy lips utter not the littlest syllable against him. And he that thinketh evil concerning thee shall be confounded in his thought, although in thy mind arise not the least thought of him. And they shall be brought unto subjection unto thee and serve thee, though thou willest it not. And it shall be unto them a grace and a sacrament. And ye shall sit down together at the supernal banquet. And ye shall feast upon the honey of the gods and be drunk upon the dew of immortality. For I am Horus, the crowned and conquering child whom thou knowest not. Damn, dude, calm down. <laughs> just to sum this up, I think it's kind of straightforward, this line. You know, you're going to just be a badass if you do this stuff. Line 29. Moreover, be they long kept, it is better, for they swell with my force, all before me. I tend to think of this line more metaphorically speaking, but I've also left offerings out for long periods of time until it's on the verge of being hazardous before moving it outside. And I, I actually ended up just making a little spot specifically for offerings outside just so I could leave it and let nature take its course but like raccoons I, yeah raccoons bugs let raccoons where, take their course seagulls where else mostly 
<laughs> but like, I guess it's okay to leave the cake of light for a long time, apparently. Um, it's, it's interesting. You know, if you were to eat the beetles, it's like that's the smashing you'd be doing. And with your mouth, you would be speaking their name as you do it. Crunch, crunch, crunch. I mean, because, yeah, it says like, like Crowley never did the experiment for for a while, at least. Is this one of the reasons why there were health hazards at the Abbey of Thelema? Wasn't that a thing? <laughs> they just kept leaving cakes of light all over the place and they got like cockroaches and raccoons. No, nah, man, this one's <laughs> still good. It's only been there for three weeks, bro. Don't you have, let's just cut the mold off and you can still eat it. Blood from a cat's face. <laughs> they went full crack fox in that place, I hear. Not much of a gobbler, is it? More like half a tennis ball. Line 30. My altar is of open brasswork, burned thereon in silver or gold. Be bougie about it. Line 31. There cometh the rich man from the west, who shall pour his gold upon thee. Clearly this is talking about Santa Claus, right? Yes. I'm inclined to agree with James Eshelman's interpretation of the rich man from the West as having to do with the holy guardian angel. And the West is obviously associated with the setting of the sun and as such with death. Oh. And and the holy guardian angel contact often coincides with ego death. And the reference to gold would appear to be like the spiritual riches gained from such an experience. Yeah. Tifereth, you know, holy guardian angel stuff. Totally. Oh, that makes it make a lot more sense. I think Crowley took it literally. He was like, I'm still waiting for some dude to show up who's rich. <laughs> My sugar daddy. Hey, Mr. Crowley from across the waters. I was hunting some food and I found some of this stuff. Y'all want to do magic in my backyard? <laughs> so sorry. I got lots of critters you can make your stuff out of. <laughs> Jesus. It's a Western man, not, not Southern. <laughs> to him, it's from the West. He's just sticking it out in his gingham skirt, waiting. Line 32, from gold forged steel. I also agree with Eshelman's commentary on this about how great strength comes from the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel and how this gold, being richness, forges steel, being strength. Yeah, it just doesn't make any other sort of sense, to be fair. Yeah, and, you know, gold is the sun and iron is Mars. That's the path from Tifereth to Gevura, which is the sun and Mars, gold and, and iron. And it's path 22, which is the lust card and its adjustment or justice on the tree. So there is some strength in knowledge and conversation with the Holy Garden Angel. And that brings us back to the one in eight, because it's the ox goad. It's the ox in the ox goad which was a huge central theme of book two. And then that would lead the aspirant to strength. Huh, that's really interesting. I agree. Line 33. Be ready to fly or to smite. So a force of strength is used both in fighting and fleeing accordingly. Uh, it's pretty necessary in, in both those situations. Oh, fight or flight. Yeah, it, this is highly related to that. If you have no strength, you can't flight. You can't do the flight either. Right. This is also kind of indicative of choosing your battles. So with true strength, you will have the ability to pick when it is appropriate to use it and when it's appropriate to step back. Yeah. And that corresponds with the justice card as well. Ah, yep. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Line 34. 
But your holy place shall be untouched throughout the centuries, though with fire and sword it be burnt down and shattered, yet an invisible house there standeth, and shall stand until the fall of the great equinox, when Hermachus shall arise, and the double-wanded one assume my throne and place. Another prophet shall arise, and bring fresh fever from the skies. Another woman shall awake the lust and worship of the snake. Another soul of God and beast shall mingle in the globed priest. Another sacrifice shall stain the tomb. Another king shall reign, and blessing no longer be poured to the hawk-headed mystical lord. So Hrumachus, or Harmachus, is the Greek rendering of Herakti, the new morning sun, the renewal, a new day. Harmachus is also associated with the Sphinx at Giza, which looks towards the east where the sun rises. Ashland says, Hormachis is the dawning sun. He therefore symbolizes any new course of events. The double-wanted one is Themaist, of dual form as Themaist and Themaet, from whom the Greeks derived Themis, the goddess of justice. Now we're really on it, huh? Now we're really spirit cooking. It's the eighth card. It comes up over and over and over in this book, and it's because it's trying to tell us we're moving from the divine right of kings to the age of justice. It's a massive overhaul. So it makes sense that if people are like, oh, it's the age of Ma'at, it, it sort of is anyway, even if they're wrong. Like, because so much of this traditional Aeon of Horus, Book of the Law stuff, is about reestablishing Ma'at. So it's not hurting anyone to say that it's the Aeon of Ma'at. On Hurmakis, Oliver St. John says, the name Hurmakis or Hurmaku is made clear in its Egyptian form. Hor M. Aket, literally Horus in the horizon. However, Aket or Akar is a gateway or door, the double lion gate of the sun's ingress and egress to and from the underworld, spring and autumn equinoxes, refers to Horus as the abstract principle of the horizon itself. It is a particular part of the sky, for example, where the sun rises at the equinox and an equivalent portion of the Egyptian underworld. The name of Horus as horizon or dweller in the horizon relates to the circle, as does his eye. The horizon also symbolizes the primordial boundary or limit, the first division or utterance of Logos, by which the universe is defined as having a shape and meaning. As X marks the spot, it also designates the crossing that is the passing beyond. Hormaku, or Hor M. Aket, was often depicted as a lion with the head of a woman, as with the Sphinx of Giza. At other times, the netter took the form of a hawk or ram, especially when linked to the god Kephra, the rising or emerging sun at the dawn. Ra accomplishes this, we should bear in mind, after traveling through the underworld, symbolized as the body of the cosmic serpent. And you'll also see in some representations of the Tree of Life with their correspondent tarot paths between them, path 19 and 22 are sometimes swapped, depending on the lodge, and you'll find adjustment or the justice card being associated with Tef running between Gavura and Chesed. So it's just another swap. 35. The half of the word of Haru-Raha, called Hur-Pakrat and Ra-Hur-Kut. Just looking at the name Haru-Raha, Haru is Horus, and it means he who is above. Ra is the sun. And Ha is also an Egyptian god, not as well known. But he's associated with the West, the Duat, deserts, Set, fertility, and protection from invaders. So to me, Haru-Raha appears to be a complete unified deity of these principles. And this line implies a dualistic character and nature. So Haruraha could be interpreted as meaning Horus sun flesh, or in other words, one who is manifest and embodies these divine aspects. So like Jesus, God in the flesh? Yeah, like you've done your shadow work, 
and you're like integrated. This reminds me of so much where Jesus has his followers stick the finger through his crucifixion wound and he's like, see, I'm God, <laughs> but I'm also dead, but I'm also Pray- alive. Praise him. He is risen. It's a lot of the same metaphors going on here. Eshelman says, Huru Raha combines ideas of Horus, also the great angel Huru, who said over the book of Tahuti, with those of Ra and spirit. For Ha is the absoluthic or archetypal spelling of He, the Holy Ghost. And Ha equals six, the number of the sun. He is also Nuit, H being her letter. The language suggests that Haru Raha is the true nature of the unity who is symbolized by the twins Harpocrates and Horus. Horparkrat being Horus a child, Harpocrates, he's, you know, you'll recognize him as being shown with his forefinger on his mouth. It symbolizes the taking in of knowledge and nourishment. The one who's in the process of learning and receiving nourishment. So traditionally, his mother Isis hides him from Set during his childhood. And during Horus's hiding, Isis protects him. And her twin sister, Nephthys, is commonly regarded as his primary wet nurse, though that role was also shared with other goddesses. Isis is associated with the ascension of the sun from dawn until noon, and Nephthys, the descent from noon until dusk. So Isis is associated with birth, growth, and life, and Nephthys with decline, death, and decay. And they were both very important goddesses. They're described as twin sisters due to this dual relationship of the same energy. The Lion King's circle of life comes to mind for me with this. So during Horus the Child's hiding from Set, the crocodile god Sobek teaches him combat and war, while Isis teaches him love and magic. Since this line mentions Rahorkut, who is portrayed graphically on the stele of revealing as Raharakti, the ultimate union of Ra and Horus. It's important to note that Rahorkut would also include Heru-Ur, which is Horus the Elder, in his manifestation. Horus the Elder is the son of truth. He upholds Ma'at. I also think it's relevant to understand that Ra isn't just symbolic of the sun. Ra is a divine collective that includes a multitude of forms. In an ancient text called the Litany of Ra, He's described as the one joined together who comes out of his own members. And this very clearly expresses a creative energy, one that represents a unity of a diverse sum of energies. The understanding here is that a key aspect of creation is a sorting out of chaos, sorting out the undifferentiated chaos into a form of order, much like what occurs within the womb with a fetus. So the combination of genes from mother and father are sorted into a kind of coherent new series of code and the child is formed ma'at being truth and order and so the divine child rahurkut likewise embodies this matured form as both the son of truth and the upholder of it and this line tells us all of this and it it actually tells us a lot more too carrot cakes of light <laughs> how about that you're not supposed to add additional ingredients well fuck them do wilt be law i'll put the golden phallus on it if i want to and don't forget the raisins yeah Ketamine frosting. Carrots are like Osiris's phallus. That's what I mean. It's like the golden phallus. But I'm going to stop. And so are we. That is until you donate at least $5 to www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit, where your donation of that $5 can get you all our extended shows. The entire library, in fact. But not only that, I'll send you a 5x5 vinyl sticker of our cover art at no additional cost to you and the secret keys to our Discord server, where you can discuss all this wackety schmackety stuff at any hour, day or night, when you're busy out in the field eating carrots and shooting lasers. (laughs) 